it's time to read the Des Moines Register for Friday, November 24th. I'm Dave Buzik. My partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. For this first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and from donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Uh, Judith and I hope that you all had a very nice Thanksgiving day yesterday and that things will continue for you this weekend. Here is the uh, first look at the weather. Clouds will thicken tonight and flurries will be possible over portions of western Iowa with a chance for light snow or flurries expanding eastward over portions of northern Iowa through the day Saturday. The main chance for accumulating light snow, though, will come later Saturday afternoon through Sunday, uh, sorry, through Saturday night, as a low-pressure system passes south of Iowa during this time. Snow chances will be highest toward the Missouri border at about 60 to 70 percent, dropping to around a 20 percent chance over far northern Iowa. The light snow will end from west to east Sunday morning, and gusty winds will develop later in the day. Snow amounts will be highest over southern Iowa, with lesser amounts over northern Iowa. While the snow totals are minor, this may cause some minor travel impacts Saturday night into the first part of Sunday for everybody returning home from Thanksgiving. Here specifically is the forecast now for today, Friday Mostly cloudy, high 33, winds out of the northeast to 10 to 15 miles an hour. Tonight, generally cloudy, low around 26, winds out of the northwest at 10. Saturday, cloudy skies, a snow flurry possible during the day with light snow arriving after sunset, high 36, winds out of the west at 5. Saturday night, variably cloudy with snow showers, a low around 26, chance of snow is 40% in central Iowa. Sunday then, a chance of snow early in the morning, then decreasing clouds and increasing winds. Total snow around, and if this happens, it's going to be hard to take, around one inch. What are we going to do? High 38 degrees, winds becoming west at around 20 miles an hour, gusting to 25 to 30. So that could blow around the snow and cause some visibility issues out on the highways. Sunday night, mostly clear, low 19. Then looking ahead to Monday, mostly sunny skies, high 35 degrees. So it looks like our unseasonably warm weather has ended for now, and uh, we've got unseasonably cold weather. So welcome to Iowa. Judith, good morning. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Let's take a look at the front page of today's Des Moines Register. Thank you, Dave. Yes, we had a very nice, quiet Thanksgiving. Yes. And here uh, the stories from today's front page. A growing effort. Nikki Haley has seen increasing support from independent voters, but will they stay? Family planning sees little use in Iowa. Blocking of abortion funding could be a factor. And DeSantis snags a major Iowa endorsement from evangelical leader. And here's the first story. A growing effort. This by F. Amanda Tugade and Stephen Gruber Miller from Newton, Iowa. Carol Camp wanted to hear what Nikki Haley had to say, quote, without anybody else's filters on, end quote. The 58-year-old political independent and educator at Iowa State University Extension saw Haley speak for the first time November 17 at a town hall in Newton. 
She came away agreeing with some parts of what Haley said and disagreeing with others. Camp said she pointed out mistakes both sides are making. That, to me, at least I know she's not going to cover for her party if they're doing something that maybe is not on the up and up. Camp supported President Joe Biden in the 2020 election, but said, I feel his time to serve America has passed. She went on to say about Haley, of what I see in the candidates in the Republican Party right now that are running, I would lean toward caucusing for her. The former South Carolina governor and United Nations ambassador is seeing growing interest from political independents like Camp as she seeks to challenge her former boss, Donald Trump. 16% of Iowa Republican caucus goers named Haley as their first choice for president in an October Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll, tying with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Trump is far ahead of the rest of the field with 43%. Haley performs better with independents than she does with likely GOP caucus goers overall. The October Iowa poll showed 22% of independents name Haley as their first choice for president, up from 10% in August. Her campaign acknowledges that momentum and seeks to build on it. David Oman, one of Haley's recent endorsers, told a crowd of more than 200 at a morning event November 17 in Ankeny, This is a growing effort. I think in a campaign it's fun to be a part of a team that is growing. At her events, Haley has honed a message aimed at undecided voters. She is the candidate who can win. She cites national polls that show her beating President Joe Biden in battleground states by larger margins than Trump or DeSantis. This isn't just about the presidency, she said. This is about us winning governorships all up and down the ballot, Senate races all up and down the ballot, and House races up and down the ballot. We want to get all of that so we can start getting our country back on track. Asking Ankeny about her ability to prevail over Trump, Haley walked the audience through her early state strategy, noting that the field of candidates has winnowed as the debate rules have tightened. She said, going into Iowa, we are going to see three to four people fight for Iowa. A couple of people are going to drop. Then we're going to go into New Hampshire, and then we're going to fight for Granite Staters. Then more people are going to drop, and then I go head-to-head -head with Trump in my home state of South Carolina, and we take it. But Haley said for that plan to work, she needs to do well in Iowa. She said, don't complain about what happens in a general election if you don't play in this caucus. It matters. Haley ends her stump speech by encouraging the crowd to convert their friends and neighbors into supporters. If you like what I had to say today, go tell 10 people, she said in Ankeny. Fill out this card and caucus for us. Go tell them to volunteer, to invest, to caucus, whatever it is. Tell your family and friends. Everybody knows they trust their family and friends on what they are going to do. And she closes with a joke. If you don't like what I had to say today, shh, she whispered, just don't say anything and don't tell anyone you were here. On the afternoon of November 16, Jim Hansen was among the independent voters who packed, I'm sorry, who attended a packed town hall event at Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque. The event marked Haley's first stop on a two-day campaign swing in Iowa. 
In the college's basement coffee shop, Hansen, 86, was among those able to grab a seat at the standing-room-only event, waiting for Haley to speak. He previously voted for Trump, but said he wants Haley in the White House. I like her real well, Hansen of Dubuque said, his voice straining to climb over the noise from the more than 200-plus crowd crammed into a tight space. He told the Des Moines Register he likes how she approaches people and her experience in foreign policy. He added, she makes a lot of common sense. She speaks to the average voter. Jerry Fennell, 72, of Dubuque, was another independent voter at the event who echoed several of Hansen's sentiments. Undecided between Haley and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Fennell said he is so far impressed by Haley's debate stage performances and he likes, quote, the way she carries herself. At another November 16 event in Waverly, 73-year-old Margaret Dean said she has her eye on Haley now. Dean of Evansdale said she voted Democrat for years but recently became an independent and is exploring Republican candidates like Haley and her rival DeSantis. But after hearing Haley at the Waverly Area Veterans Post, she said she is now iffy about DeSantis. She said she also thinks Trump is too sarcastic for me and I don't like the way he treats people. Dean said she feels Haley has the right ideas and is willing to do the work. She likes Haley's stances on national security and abortion. Haley has said on the campaign trail and the debate stage that she is unapologetically pro-life, but has called on people to stop demonizing an issue that is personal for many women and men. Dean told the Register her own beliefs on abortion are similar to Haley's. Dean said, I am not against anybody that does get an abortion for certain reasons. It shouldn't be the government telling. That's how I feel about it. She's kind of that way. She respects anybody's rights. Seeing Haley speak is enough to lock in some supporters. At Haley's Newton event, former Republican Party of Iowa Executive Director Marlis Popma stood up and gave an impromptu speech endorsing Haley. Popma, a former president of Iowa Right to Life, said Haley, um, quote, has a softer approach to the issue, but is as pro-life as any of us would want her to be. I was an undecided voter when I walked in here today, and I am no longer an undecided voter, she told the crowd. Barbara Arthur was at the same event. The 73-year-old from Oakland Acres is a Republican who said before the event that she was undecided and was considering Trump, DeSantis, and Haley. Afterward, Arthur made a confession. She said, I never told you this when you were first talking to me, but I was leaning toward Trump, and she's kind of flipped me. She is a very good leader. Others, like former Democratic state lawmaker Wes Breckenridge, now a political independent, showed up to hear Haley speak, but uh, is not ready uh, to make a decision. Breckenridge said, after hearing Haley speak in Newton, I think for the Republican side, I see her some as somebody that could bring a step back towards civility within the Republican Party. It's too early to tell if um, he would caucus for Haley, but he said he is a strong proponent of Biden, who is just listening to the Republican candidates right now, not making plans to caucus for them. Uh, Breckenridge said, I think one of the things I look at is if you don't get out and listen to all the candidates, you're not making an informed decision. So that's what I choose to do. 
Camp, the Newton Independent who voted for Biden in 2020, has not made her decision either. Although she said she would lean toward caucusing for Haley, Camp was not ready to commit as she walked out of the building. Uh, she said, today is the first day I've actually got to hear her, so I have some research to do. Well, there's a second political story on the front page of Des Moines Register, but let's take a little break from politics and read this third story on the front page with the headline, Family Planning Sees Little Use in Iowa. Blocking of abortion funding could be the factor. The story by Michaela Rahm of the Register. Six years ago, Iowa lawmakers redrafted a safety net program that provides family planning services to low- and moderate-income Iowans, abandoning a federal program to create their own state-run version instead. But it never really caught on, and use of the program, already low, has been dropping significantly, down 83 percent since 2017. Moreover, the program is paying for far fewer birth control pills, pelvic exams, pregnancy tests, and other related services for Iowans compared with its previous incarnation under the federal program, which often utilized Planned Parenthood to provide other family planning services. The Republican-controlled Iowa legislature reshaped the program to prohibit family planning funding from going to Planned Parenthood and any other clinic that provided abortions. Iowa's top officials overseeing the state program say the coronavirus pandemic likely depressed patient visits, a contention that some researchers dispute. But officials also have acknowledged a general lack of awareness of the program among most Iowans, in part, they say, because no funding is being used to advertise its services. But new state data and research are shedding more light on the ramifications for patients when state and federal policies undercut abortion providers like Planned Parenthood as the fight over abortion rights continues to play out in Iowa. Planned Parenthood facilities have been known and trusted for reproductive health care, and without clear knowledge of where else to go, patients are more likely to simply forego those services, researchers have found. The problem is compounded by the growing challenges healthcare providers face from staffing shortages, growing costs, and dwindling funding. Allison Smith, executive director of the Family Planning Council of Iowa, said, Overall, in this environment of limited funding for public health infrastructure, there have been a number of challenges we've been facing, whether budget cuts or program restrictions based on the administration that's in power or COVID-19. She said it just really shortchanges reproductive health services and puts providers and patients in a fragile position. Officials with the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the program, did not respond to the register's questions. As the debate over abortion access was heating up in 2017, the Republican-led Iowa legislature took aim at Planned Parenthood clinics and other providers that offer abortion by excluding them from the new state-funded family planning program. The program was launched in July 2017 after lawmakers directed the state to leave the federal family planning network, leaving behind more than $3 million in federal Medicaid funding each year. Between 2017 and 2018, the number of Iowans receiving services under the program fell from about 2,400 to only 800, according to recent figures from the state. Participation increased to 1,600 in 2019, then fell to about 1,300 in 2020. 
In 2021, the latest total available, only 423 individuals received services under the new state program. During that time, patients who had relied on these publicly funded family planning uh, clinics were less likely to receive that care after the switch. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which has been studying Iowa as part of a multi-year study on impact to reproductive health. Among its findings, one study found that patients not using any contraceptive increased from 9% to 15% two years after the switch. Megan Cavanaugh, a researcher behind Guttmacher Institute's Reproductive Health Impact Study, said the pandemic does not explain the drop in patients enrolled in the program, since those totals were already significantly declining before COVID-19. Instead, Kavanaugh said the drop is largely due to the closure of four Planned Parenthood clinics in the state, which were key sites for the family planning program. The clinic closures were a direct result of the loss of federal funding after Iowa lawmakers blocked Planned Parenthood from the program, said Ruth Richardson, CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States. She said, What we feel abundantly clear about is that there are hundreds of working-class Iowans who are not getting access to essential reproductive health care. And it's clear that the state's program is serving fewer people than it was prior to defunding Planned Parenthood. State lawmakers in favor of the switch had said at the time that patients would instead receive this care at community health care facilities, therefore helping reach more Iowans by spreading out these dollars to other providers. The state has a list of 740 providers that state leaders say participate in the family planning program. However, Smith said it's unclear how many of these providers are actively enrolling patients in the program. In fact, the state data shows only 25 providers offered services under the program to those 423 patients served in 2021. That had fallen from the 84 providers that offered services to about 1,300 individuals under the program in 2020. While it's clear that excluding Planned Parenthood did result in immediate impacts to patients, Smith said there are still opportunities for the program to grow and meet the goals set out by lawmakers in 2017. Smith, again reminding you that that's, uh, she's the executive director of the Family Planning Council of Iowa, Allison Smith, she said, quote, it's really disappointing to exclude providers that have been the trusted and preferred providers for patients. At the same time, I think the program has a lot of potential. The need for contraceptive services has not magically disappeared, so it was really concerning to see these drops in volumes and funding. State data does show some uptick in the number of individuals using family planning services through Medicaid in 2020 and 2021, when state governments were not allowed to disenroll anyone from Medicaid coverage, even if they no longer qualified, as part of the federal government's emergency, even if they no longer qualified, as part of the federal government's emergency response to COVID-19. That expanded eligibility ended earlier this year, and over the next several months, thousands of Iowans are expected to lose their coverage. Kavanaugh said that, said that that means Iowans will have less access to publicly supported sexual and reproductive health care. Kavanaugh said, more broadly, a large body of evidence has established that health insurance is a key facilitator to accessing sexual and reproductive health care and to using desired contraception. 
Kavanaugh, who again is the researcher behind the Guttmacher Institute study, said, it's not too much of a cognitive leap to surmise that the more people who are disenrolled from Medicaid, the less care folks will be able to access, resulting in poor sexual and reproductive health outcomes. Though Iowa Department of Health and Human Services did not respond to the register's questions about the future of the program, state officials did previously voice hopes to discuss budgetary opportunities with legislative leaders to promote the program. DeSantis snags a major Iowa endorsement from evangelical leader. This story by Brianne Fannenseal. Influential evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz is endorsing Ron DeSantis for president a move he hopes will motivate Iowa's Christian conservatives to rally around the Florida governor as the chief alternative to former President Donald Trump at the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses. Vanderplatz confirmed his endorsement to the Des Moines Register in an interview Tuesday. Vanderplatz said, DeSantis is exceptionally accomplished. He is campaigning the right way and building the infrastructure the right way. He has done the Iowa caucuses the right way, and I believe he has proven he can win in demographics we need to win. Vanderplatz has long said the Republican Party needs to coalesce around a candidate to have any hope of taking on Trump. He pointed to Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' historic endorsement of DeSantis, as well as endorsements from dozens of state legislators, conservative radio host Steve Deese, former Republican Party of Iowa co-chair Cody Hoford, and others as evidence that is happening. Vanderplatt said, those are people that can actually win a caucus. And so I believe by lending my voice there, Iowa is showing a coalescing around one candidate's. Vanderplatz, who is the president and CEO of the family leader, has endorsed the winner of the last three contested GOP caucuses, Mike Huckabee in 2008, Rick Santorum in 2012, and Ted Cruz in um, 2016. None of them went on to win the nomination. His endorsement of DeSantis comes, I'm sorry, as the Florida governor has yet to show substantial growth in the polls. The latest Des Moines Register NBC News Iowa poll showed him tied at 16% with former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley for a distant second place behind Trump, who was at 43%. Vanderplatz said he thinks highly of Haley, who has shown upward momentum, gaining 10 percentage points in the most recent Iowa poll. But he said he does not believe she can win the Republican nomination. He pointed to the latest poll, um, Iowa poll, of likely Republican caucus goers, which showed a great deal of overlap between Trump's and DeSantis's bases of support. Of those who named Trump as their first choice for president, 41% said DeSantis was their second choice. Haley was at 16%, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy was at 15%. Vanderplatz said, if you are looking for an alternative to Trump, you need to have somebody that the Trump voters would go to, and that obviously is Ron DeSantis. He noted that Iowans typically break late in the caucuses, making up their minds only in the final weeks and days of the race, and he said he has confidence DeSantis will break through. To help manifest that outcome, Vanderplatz promised to hit the campaign trail on behalf of the campaign, saying he will do whatever I can to make the endorsement stick. 
Outside of the Caucasus, Vanderplatz was an effective surrogate when then-state Senator Randy Feenstra challenged the embattled incumbent U.S. Representative Steve King in a 2020 primary. Vanderplatz cut an ad and traveled on behalf of Feenstra's campaign, a move that some political insiders credit with helping to move the needle on Feenstra's behalf in deeply conservative northwest Iowa. That corner of the state could also prove critical to this year's crop of presidential contenders. Vanderplatt said he sees similarities between the fight to take down Trump and the one to convince Iowa Republicans to oust a controversial but seemingly invincible congressman. That was a multi-candidate race, too, where people said there is no way you're going to beat Steve King in a multi-candidate race, Vanderplatt said. However, if there is enough of a coalescing, which there was, Randy beat Steve King by about 10 points. Vanderplatt's endorsement comes just days after he hosted DeSantis, Haley, and Ramaswamy at the Family Leaders Thanksgiving Forum. The event featured all three candidates seated at a Thanksgiving table and was organized as a conversation intended to show the candidates' personalities and their values. Vanderplatz, who said he is endorsing as an individual rather than on behalf of the family leader, said he was leaning toward DeSantis before that event, but needed clarity. He said he got that, particularly when DeSantis spoke about why he felt called to challenge Trump rather than waiting for a future cycle. I think we need somebody that's going to fight, and I think Donald Trump was somebody that came and said he'd fight for us, but we also need somebody that's going to win. Somebody who's going to win for you and win for your family. And yes, that involves, of course, winning the election, DeSantis said at the event. He went on to say, and it's my view, that when push comes to shove in November of 2024, if Donald Trump is the candidate, the American people are not going to go there. Vanderplas has been a vocal opponent of Trump's re-election efforts, arguing that it is time for the country to move on. He agreed with DeSantis that Trump has been a loser for the party in elections in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023. He said, I think it's all because Trump is the face of this movement right now, and exit polling is showing that they do not trust the party right now, and I think that is a reflection of Trump. If Trump is elected, Vanderplant said he would be a lame duck as soon as he's elected because he could not seek another term. DeSantis could be a two-term president, he said. And Vanderplant does not worry about DeSantis's ability to recruit top political talent to work with him in the White House, unlike Trump. He said everybody that has served with him is getting sued into financial distress, and he is showing no willingness to have their back. Vanderplatz said of Trump, look at the former vice president who served with him for four years as a loyal soldier. He didn't have his back on January 6, so who is going to serve with Trump? Vanderplatz said he has a tremendous amount of faith in DeSantis as an advocate for anti-abortion policies, as well as pro-family policies that focus on the church and the community, as well as government. Additionally, he said, He's also gotten to know the DeSantis family over the years and believes they would be role models in the White House. Vanderplatt said he is a man of deep faith. He is a man who genuinely loves his family and he adores his wife. And I think that is important today.
Trump's operation has been working to get ahead of the anticipated endorsement for weeks, with his super PAC issuing a memo from pollster Tony Fabrizio in early November saying a Vanderplatz endorsement would have negligible impact and his image was mixed among caucus goers who were aware of him. The Trump campaign on Tuesday pushed out a list of 150 Iowa faith leaders who have endorsed his campaign. The Reverend Dan McCoy, senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Urbandale, said in a statement, The overwhelming support from Iowa's faith leaders is a clear indication of President Trump's unwavering commitment to the principles and values that are important to people of faith. Trump's campaign has also seized on an August report from Reuters that the DeSantis campaign, his super PAC, and a nonprofit group had paid $95,000 to the Family Leader Foundation. The Trump campaign ran a similar playbook after Reynolds announced her endorsement of DeSantis. Earlier Tuesday, Trump released a scathing video on social media calling Reynolds the quote, most unpopular governor in America, and suggesting DeSantis had promised her a role in his administration in exchange for the endorsement. The Iowa poll in August found that Reynolds remains popular among Republicans in the state, with 81 percent viewing her favorably. Her favorability ratings in that August poll outperformed the Republican 2024 field, including Trump, who was rated as favorable by 65 percent of likely Iowa caucus goers. In a social media post published shortly after the video was released, Reynolds affirmed her support for DeSantis. It is not about me, she wrote. It's about our country. Ron DeSantis follows through on his promises, can serve eight years, and has a winning record. He is the most effective leader I have ever seen. If you like what we're doing in Iowa, you will love what he will do for this country. Vanderplatz is a controversial figure outside the faith community, in part because of his belief that conservative Christian ideology should drive government. His group, the family leader, has been a champion of anti-abortion legislation and hosted Reynolds at a July rally where she signed the state's six-week abortion ban into law. The Democratic National Committee issued a statement criticizing Vanderplatt's abortion stance and dismissed his ability to change the outcome of the race. Uh, DNC National Press Secretary Serafina Chitika said in a statement, Bob Vanderplatt's endorsement is the ultimate kiss of death for Ron DeSantis' sinking campaign and guarantees DeSantis will never be the Republican nominee. There is truly no one in politics with a worse endorsement record. And we'll move to the front page of the Metro and Iowa section in today's Des Moines Register for Friday, November 24th. Four stories on the front page. Across the top, City of Des Moines may join the proposed regional water facility. Along the right-hand side, nursing home hit with 62 violations. Along the left and sort of left center is a more of a visual story. 100-year-old tree lighting tradition brightens the holiday. And then on the bottom, Ankeny okays that city's farthest north annexation. Yet, let's stop at the, start at the top with uh, the headline, The City of Des Moines May Join Proposed Regional Water Utility. Des Moines City Council unanimously okays a resolution and plans for a new system have been in works for years. This story by Kyle Werner. Des Moines has signaled support for its water customers to join a proposed new regional water system. 
The Des Moines City Council unanimously approved a resolution this week with the intent for Des Moines Waterworks to join Central Iowa Waterworks, CIWW. The planned new water utility that would unite Central Iowa communities in managing water supply and quality. The idea is not a new one for Central Iowa. In fact, it's been in the works for years. Des Moines City Council member Carl Voss said at the meeting this week, I'm glad we're finally getting somewhere. It's only been, what, six years, maybe longer? Des Moines Waterworks, Urbandale's Water Utility, and West Des Moines Waterworks released the third and final draft of an agreement to do so in September, though communities still need to approve the final agreement. In October, Ankeny moved to join the proposed CIWW, saying it would be in the best interest of its residents and water customers and their long-term water needs. Officials hope to have the new consortium operational on January 1 of 2025. According to a city council document, Des Moines Waterworks Board of Waterworks Trustees believes that the Central Iowa Waterworks will create the fairest and most equitable sharing of costs for the region. That council document continued, Members collaborate on decisions to expand or build treatment plants, plan regionally for treatment and production costs, and manage financial risk for the water utility. Central Iowa Waterworks would purchase water produced by Des Moines Waterworks and utilities in other member communities and then sell it back to members at an exclusive wholesale rate for distribution. Objectives of the proposal include managing water costs by providing stability and promoting water resource management as an asset for quality of life and economic development in light of climate change and water sourcing challenges. Each community would supply the water it purchases to its individual customers, setting its own water rates, operating and maintaining local water mains and water towers, and providing customer service. The City Council document said, Des Moines Waterworks will continue to exist as a water utility serving its existing retail customers and will retain ownership of its customer service and distribution systems, will continue to provide service to its direct retail customers, and will continue to provide water from the same treatment plants to its customers. The governing agency of the Central Iowa Waterworks would manage the water system, consolidating leadership among the many community water departments, independent waterworks, and rural water utilities. Each founding community would have a seat on the system's governing board. Several communities and systems have expressed interest in joining the proposed Central Iowa Waterworks, while two, Altoona and Bondurant, have announced that they will be going their own way. Nursing home hit with 62 violations. Residents loses uh, left after getting gangrene. This story uh, by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A West Des Moines nursing home has been cited for 62 violations in recent weeks, one of which is tied to a resident who contracted gangrene and had to have a leg amputated. Since August, the Iowa Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing has visited Pine Acres Rehabilitation and Care Center twice and cited it for violating a total of 47 federal regulations and 15 state regulations, an exceptionally large number of violations. The state agency has proposed a total of $89,500 in fines against the facility during that same three-month period. The first visit was in response to a backlog of 13 uninvestigated complaints, 
all of which were substantially substantiated by inspectors. The second visit, in late October, was in response to another 12 complaints, all of which were substantiated. In both instances, the home was cited for failing to employ a sufficient number of workers. Staffing levels are a growing concern among advocates for the elderly as care facilities struggle to fill staff vacancies. Governor Kim Reynolds recently joined other Republican governors in opposing federal efforts to impose new staffing requirements on nursing homes that collect taxpayer money through Medicare and Medicaid. Pine Acres primary owner, New York investor Ico, uh, Ike, has ties to other nursing home owners who currently stand accused of defrauding the government. Among the issues cited by state officials during their most recent inspection at Pine Acres is the home's alleged failure to assess and treat a growing pressure sore on the foot of a 70-year-old woman. On the morning of September 12, the woman was found in bed, twitching and jerking, and did not know where she was or the year. The resident was taken to a hospital and admitted in critical condition after being diagnosed with blood poisoning, septic shock. The hospital performed an emergency surgical amputation of the resident's leg just below the knee to prevent any further spread of the infection in her foot. The woman later told inspectors she felt that if she had been given the prescribed baths and skin assessments related to the sore on her foot, the amputation could have been prevented. As a result of the situation, the state proposed a $9,250 fine against Pine Acres for failing to provide residents with the required nursing services. That penalty was then tripled to $27,750 due to it being a repeat violation, but was held in suspension so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services could consider imposing a federal penalty. According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, federal penalties were last imposed at Pine Acres in December of 2021. An additional fine of $6,500 was proposed for resident abuse. That fine was then tripled to $19,500 due to it being a repeat violation and held in suspension. A separate $500 penalty for failing to report resident abuse was also held in suspension. The home also was cited for failing to investigate, prevent, or correct alleged violations, failing to meet professional standards, failing to deliver the minimum quality of care, failing to property label and store drugs, and other issues. During their August visit to Pine Acres, Inspectors noted that in February of 2023, the administrator had received an email from a relative of a resident. The relative said she was shocked at the sight of the multiple open sores on the resident's skin, saying it stunned her and she could not believe she had not been notified. The director of nursing responded that the staff would be re-educated, but allegedly offered no explanation as to the lack of notification. Days later, the resident was admitted to a hospital and diagnosed with urine in her bloodstream and acute kidney failure. A Pine Acre staffer told inspectors the hospital staff had concluded the sores on the resident's skin had been caused by toxins that her kidneys could not excrete and were emerging through her skin. Two workers told inspectors they did not realize anything was wrong with the woman because staffers from the previous shift had not reported anything. 
the state proposed and then suspended a $7,500 fine for failing to assess residents and provide the necessary care. Additional fines that were held in suspension included $7,000 for failing to provide adequate nursing services and $13,250 for failing to investigate allegations of resident abuse and failing to separate the accused workers from the alleged victims. State inspectors reported that seven of the home's residents complained that workers were rough with them when providing care. The state inspectors reported a serious adverse outcome was likely to occur as the facility additionally failed to report and thoroughly investigate all allegations of abuse. A nurse's aide told inspectors she had relayed to the director of nursing a female resident's complaint that a worker was being rough with her. The aide said the director of nursing responded by saying the accused worker was needed um, to cover the facility staffing needs. The administrator acknowledged such issues had, quote, been pushed under the rug. According to inspectors, staff and residents had also raised concerns about a male employee who was alleged to be rough with residents, had cussed at them, manhandled them, and forced some of them to go to bed hours before they wanted to retire for the evening. One resident complained the worker had responded to her request for assistance in using the bathroom by entering her room, removing her oxygen supply, and then pulling her call light cord out of the wall. An aide questioned why the man was still working there and told inspectors the facility needed to get him out of here. A review of the mail worker's personnel file revealed no disciplinary action and no concerns related to resident complaints, inspectors alleged. Two residents complained to inspectors that the overnight shift workers were rude, sat outside residents' rooms talking loudly on the phone with their earbuds in, and did not engage with them while providing care. A third resident complained half of the staff at Pine Acres was horrible, said mean things, and were physically rough when providing care. The facility's social services assistant told inspectors the staff had repeatedly failed to provide assistance for one male resident. She told inspectors the man would scream when his call light went unanswered, but multiple staffers would ignore him while sitting at the nurse's station. An aide told inspectors that other workers in the home would verbally abuse the residents and that when she had arrived for her morning shift, the residents were soaking wet. Residents also complained to the home's administration that they could not get any assistance from the staff after 9.30 p.m. because the workers were all in the break room waiting to clock out and go home. While an inspector watched, a resident using a walker approached a male employee of the home, identified in state reports as Staff Z, and asked for some Kleenex for herself and her roommate. In their written report, the inspectors described the interaction. Staff Z, a certified nurse's aide, approached the resident and, while chewing gum with an open mouth, told the resident the facility did not have any Kleenex. The resident asked inquisitively, you don't have any Kleenex? Why? Staff Z continued to chew gum in the same manner and replied, because the delivery truck hasn't come yet. The resident asked when she could get some Kleenex, and Staff Z said in an abrupt tone, in about three days. The resident initially responded, oh, okay, as she turned around to walk away. She furrowed her eyebrows with a bewildered look, 
turned back towards Stapsy and said, Three days? Why would it take three days to get Kleenex? Staff Z explained, I am not telling you a story in a defensive tone, similar to someone accused of lying. Inspectors also cited Pine Acres for a medication error rate that was approaching 11% for growing residents with cold meals and for having expired food on hand in the kitchen, including molasses that had expired 43 months earlier, corn muffin mix that had been expired for 16 months, and milk that had expired six days earlier. The home was also cited for insufficient staff, with inspectors noting that residents complained of, complained of horrible wait times to have their call lights answered. The home's director of nursing told inspectors she felt the home was overstaffed. According to federal records, Pine Acres is owned and managed by a New York-based group of investors that includes Plus Ike, who has 60% ownership stake in the facility. Other investors include Israel Kaplan, who has operational control of Pine Acres, and a stake in another Iowa care facility, the Prestige Care Center in Fairfield. One of Kaplan's partners is Ephraim Lahasky, who is the husband of Ike, Pine Acres' primary owner. In Vermont last year, regulators raised concerns about who was behind the proposed purchase of care facilities in that state, Lahasky or his wife. Ike was then uh, the, the officially designated buyer, but it was Lahasky's name that appeared on the loan documents. Lahasky is currently being sued by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who has accused Lahasky and others of defrauding the government of more than $18 million while understaffing and neglecting residents at the Villages, a 120-bed facility in northwestern New York. Lahasky and his partners in the Villages allegedly obtained mortgages to finance the original purchase of the facility, then obtained a $15 million loan to refinance the mortgage. They then claimed $4 million as a cash distribution of loan proceeds. In 2020, the facility was again refinanced through the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and an additional $3.6 million was withdrawn as profit for the owners, according to the New York Attorney General. The care facility then had to repay the inflated costs of the mortgage out of its operating account, which allegedly led to a dramatic decrease in the quality of care while creating the false impression of a cash-strapped nursing home. Lahaska has also been part owner of Brighton Rehab and Wellness Center in Pennsylvania, where authorities have accused the operators of falsifying staff hours and overcharging for resident care. And this story on the um, bottom part of the front page of today's Metro and Iowa section, headline, Ankeny okays the city's farthest north annexation yet, a story by Chris Higgins of the Des Moines Register. The Ankeny City Council approved a large annexation on November 20th that could push the city's borders even farther north. The council moved forward with a proposal to annex about 420 acres of property, not including road right-of-way, north of 100 and, it's north of Northeast 126th Avenue and in between Ankeny Boulevard and Delaware Avenue. The additional land would place Ankeny's northern border above Alleman's southern edge and near uh, Denler Drive. 
The proposal still needs to be approved by the State City Development Board at a later date. The area is planned for mostly low-density housing with an area of medium-density housing and neighborhood mixed-use development. The owners of 10 properties, including development firm Hope Kimberly and other landowners across 345 acres, agreed to become a part of Ankeny. The owners of nine properties across 77 acres who did not agree to the annexation were included to prevent irregular borders and islands of city property surrounded by county property. Under Iowa law, cities can annex land from property owners who do not consent as long as the owners of at least 80% of the land in an annexation area request it. That keeps cities in line with Iowa law, which discourages irregular borders and prohibits islands. Annexing land allows developers more access to city services and space to meet the demand for future housing and commercial growth in fast-growing Ankeny. Some of the property owners who objected to the annexation but were still included have said they are concerned about how becoming part of Ankeny could impact their property taxes and way of life. While suburban development replaces agricultural land and brings more road traffic and students to the local schools. Their concerns have echoed those from non-consenting property owners in previous 80-20 annexations. The nearby small city of Alleman, which has tangled with Ankeny over annexations, did not oppose this proposal. Alleman Mayor Bob Crammy wrote in August uh, that the proposal is consistent with Alleman's expansion plan and that the city's goal is to preserve the Northeast 134th Avenue corridor. The letter said Alleman is planning for future street improvements and sewer services in that area. Councilmember Kelly Stearns abstained from voting on the annexation proposal due to a potential conflict of interest involving a family member. And uh, the last story from uh, Metro and Iowa front page, 100-year-old tree lighting tradition brightens the holiday. Started in 1914, event has become part of Story City's annual Yule Fest uh, festivities, and there are several photos accompanying this picture. Uh, this article, um, one of the very earlier pictures, I believe, uh, with uh, snow on the ground and uh, lighted up. Um, the other one was from 2021, and we see many uh, people, a crowd gathering to watch the lighting of the Christmas tree downtown. And here's the story by Rana Faborg of the Ames Tribune. Find the magic in Story City this holiday season. The rural Story County town erects a temporary roundabout on Broad Street every December, anchored by an impressively illuminated Christmas tree. Story City has celebrated the annual tradition since 1914, while a tree lighting ceremony has become part of Story City's annual Yule Fest festivities. This year's theme is Find the Holiday Magic in Story City. With a nod to the town's Norwegian heritage, Yulefest is held annually on the Friday after Thanksgiving. It includes caroling around the tree, a ceremonial tree lighting, an appearance by Santa, a soup supper, and a cookie decorating activity. The tree lighting will take place at 6 p.m. Friday. The fire station is holding its annual Soup with Santa event from 5 to 7 p.m., Guests can enjoy soup and hot dogs for a free will donation. There will be cookie decorating for the kids and a visit from Santa. 
The fire station wrote uh, in the Facebook uh, event, all funds raised go toward keeping our equipment updated so we can best serve our community. Story City made news across the Midwest when it put up its first municipal Christmas tree in 1914. In the early 1900s, electric holiday lights were a new concept, and when the first tree in Story City was lit in 1914, the spectacle drew visitors from miles around, according to the museums of Story City. The Story City Herald reported on December 17 of that year that the community was the first in Iowa to have a great big municipal Christmas tree. Peter Eide was visiting Story City and was quoted in the December 31, 1914 Herald, Story City's municipal Christmas tree was the biggest stunt the town ever pulled off. Eide said he had seen the tree mentioned in every newspaper he picked up in his travels around the country, from Minneapolis to Chicago, Sioux City to Dubuque. Herald's, Herald's editor Paul A. Olson wrote in the December 17, 1914 edition, The tree is not only a beautiful thing in itself, but its splendor calls to mind and emphasizes the joyous spirit of the Yuletide in a manner that nothing else could have done. Besides, the tree stands for Story City's unity in a most effective way. It represents no church, no society, no individual. It is, in very truth, a municipal Christmas tree, bodying forth the hopes and joys of the whole community, reminding all to prepare, to prepare for the natal day of the King of Kings. This story from the online edition of The Register. Iowa school officials apologize after mistakenly quoting a World War II Nazi who devised the Holocaust. This story by Samantha Hernandez of The Register. Indianola Community School District has apologized after mistakenly using a quote by Heinrich Himmler, a high-ranking Nazi considered to be the architect of the Holocaust, as part of its morning school announcements. The quote, My honor is my loyalty attributed to Heinrich Himmler, was the November 20th respect quote of the day, according to KCCI-TV. The quote was shared over the middle school's public address system and in an email to families. The phrase, loyalty is my honor, was used in Nazi Germany by the Schutzstaffel, or the SS, to show their loyalty to Adolf Hitler, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, aims to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. Indianola district officials shared the apology letter with the Des Moines Register, but did not respond to emails or phone calls seeking additional information. The letter included an apology to district families for the mistake, according to Iowa Public Radio. Indianola Superintendent Ted Eines, it must be pronounced, it's spelled I-H-N-S, wrote in the email, This morning, November 20th, an administrative staff member accidentally posted a respect quote of the day before checking the source of the quote. The staff member did not realize that the quote was from a highly inappropriate source. The superintendent wrote that officials plan to implement a new process for double-checking the quotes going forward. He did not give details on what that change would include. Experts stress that school officials need to remember that words can influence people. Jared Bernstein, Jewish Federation of Greater Des Moines Executive Director, said in an interview with the Register, Taking a step back, 
What are you trying to communicate? Maybe it is a powerful tool to help educate, but because you're going to go down that route, know what you're doing because words have power. Bernstein recommends officials do a Google search before using any quotes in the future. The Indianola quote incident comes just weeks after the U.S. Department of Education released a Dear Colleague letter to remind officials of their, quote, federal legal obligations to ensure non-discriminatory environments for all students amid an increase in anti-Semitic incidents and threats to Jewish, Israeli, Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian students on college campuses and in K-12 schools. The increase in anti-Semitic incidents is due to the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Bernstein said. Indianola is not alone in quotes attributed to Nazis being used in schools. In May of uh, 2019, a Green Bay area public high school senior in Green Bay, Wisconsin, used, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. Hyphen Adolf Hitler. He used that as his yearbook quote. The quote is a paraphrase of a statement by Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels. At the, time of the, at the time that this happened, the district announced that it would discontinue the practice of allowing senior quotes in yearbooks. In February of 2021, Westside Community School District officials in Omaha, Nebraska, apologized after a staff member displayed the quote, The man who has no sense of history is like a man with no eyes or ears, which is also attributed to Hitler. Bernstein hopes the use of a Himmler quote was an honest mistake because the incident could have an impact on the school's overall culture. The Nazi regime was an enemy of the United States, Bernstein said. What would you do if you Googled the quote and it turned out to be from Robert E. Lee? Do you think that would be appropriate? No. If you're trying to communicate an idea, find a better way or a better source. Multifamily assisted living coming to Pleasant Hill. This story by Chris Higgins. A new assisted living site is coming to Pleasant Hill. Hubble, the developer, has broken ground on the new Edencrest multifamily assisted living facility near the intersection of Martha L. Miller Drive and Northeast 60th Street. The $13 million project will have 70 units, 44 units for assisted living, and 26 units for memory care. The memory units could also be used for assisted living if needed. The units range from studios to two bedrooms. Construction is anticipated to be finished in late 2024, according to information provided by Hubble. The Pleasant Hill facility will be the ninth Edencrest site in central Iowa. Hubble is planning for a tenth Edencrest in Adele. The site is next to Hubble's Ford 65 rental townhouse and apartment complex where residents began moving in over the summer. Hubble is planning for some more townhomes south of the Edencrest site. Commercial development could also be on the way in the area as Pleasant Hill transforms east of Highway 65.